Hey there, this is Liren Baker, and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Neil Dutchgrasak of Jazzberry Rice. Neil founded Siam Organic when he and his partner, Pommy, learned that despite Thailand's position as the world's largest exporter of rice, its farmers are amongst the poorest in the world. Starting with Jazzberry Rice, they have found a way to help over 2,500 farmers grow out of poverty, one grain of rice at a time. I am so excited to welcome Neil to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm very good, and I'm happy to see you. But before we begin, I always start by asking, what's the first thing that you remember cooking? And about how old were you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh the first time I, I remember cooking and how old was I? Um, well, I must, I must have been about pretty pretty old actually i was 14 years old and i moved from thailand to australia so when i arrived in australia of course everyone wanted to eat thai food so they look at me and like okay so you're thai and you must <laughs> you must be great in the kitchen so i met i met like the worst i think the worst noodle soup I've ever tested and they said it was amazing so you know i got away with it <laughs> Well, I'm glad you did. That's awesome. I love noodle soup. I could have that every day. <laughs> yeah, well, I made it from scratch, you know, from like a broth uh, with the using uh, spare ribs. So. <laughs> well, then it couldn't have been that bad. That's pretty ambitious for 14. <laughs> well, my mom taught me, so. Oh, so, good. So you're ready. So you already knew the basics. Um, so we were 14 when you moved to Australia for school. Can you tell everybody a little bit more about yourself and what life was like before you began Jazzberry Rice? Well, to cut a long story short, so I'm, I'm Thai. So I was born in Thailand and at the age of 14, I, I moved to, to Australia by myself. So I was in a boarding school and I ended up spending 11 years in Australia. And half of those times when I was in high school, I, I stayed in a small farm. Uh, in a tiny town called Kutamandra. And uh, don't mind, even Australian people don't know the, the town. So, um, so yeah, I, I grew up a lot with nature. And, you know, Jasper was uh, a project, a continuation of, of my passion in life, which is, and I know this sounds like cliche, but I was always one of those people who was like looking for meaning in life and purpose uh, and passion. And, you know, this is a project that combines the thing I love the most in life, which is making a difference to other people's life um, in, in so many ways. Um, yeah, but it, you know, it, it's it's a long story, let's say. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's, it's really all about um, making a difference in people's life. And that's, that's why I do what I do. What did you study at university? I did environmental engineering and mm -hmm. economics. Okay, so that probably does play a role in, in what you're doing now. Yeah, like I think that um, having uh, like one of the, the idols that I had growing up, I had a few idols growing up, uh, some of which, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. You know, I listened to I Have a Dream speech when I was like 15, and that really inspired me, um, you know, Nelson Mandela. But actually one person that really inspired me, he, he's a Thai gentleman called Sid Nakasatian. And he um, was a very uh, from a very poor family in Thailand. He ended up getting a scholarship to study in London from the government. He ended up coming back to Thailand to work with the Rainforest Protection uh, Agency, which is part of the government. So he dedicated his entire life there. And because of his work, 
um, a lot of people were that were benefiting from illegal locking and extracting resources were very unhappy and they kill uh, some of his team members and threaten to kill his family. So one night he he wrote a letter and he, he got a gun and shot himself. And his death um, started the largest environmental movement in our history. Uh, and the forest now is the largest rainforest in Southeast Asia. So he was someone that I look up to as, as a little kid. Um, and I was always like wondering like, how, how could someone love something so much that they're willing to die for it? Mm. Um, and for me, like that started a journey of, of doing something that I would happily give my life to. And uh, yeah, so that really started when I was quite young. Wow, so what a wonderful role model to look up to at such a young age. And now you're doing your, you're making a difference in your own way. And it was very interesting to read. I know that Thailand is one of the world's largest rice exporters, if not the first, the number one. Um, but you had a moment when you learned that Thai rice farmers are among the poorest in the world. And I'd love to know, what did this spark in you? Like, what, what was going through your mind when you first learned this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine they earn 40 cents per day. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine what life is like when you earn 40 cents per day, especially now I'm in Los Angeles. Um, it's, you know, I don't think his people can relate to that kind of right. life. What can you and get if, for 40 cents? Yeah, what can you get for 40 cents? Exactly. And, and you know, to be honest with you, when I when I first started, it, it really, um, uh, I was very uh, curious because there are 17 million rice farmers in Thailand. That's 25% of the country which means that one in four Thai person is a farmer. Um, so when I first learned that, I was shocked because I grew up in Bangkok, which is the capital city. And Bangkok is kind of like Los Angeles. You know, it's a, it's a big metropolitan city, it's international. So I never got out much to the northeastern part of Thailand, which is the most impoverished region in Thailand, which is where most of the farmers are. And they're basically zero tourists. So it's really even the foreigner who traveled Thailand for, for decades, they've never been to that region. So I ended up spending the first, after I found that out, I ended up spending the next year living with the farmer. So I went to the region, I stayed in a farmer's house, I slept on their floor, and I started to learn what it was like to live on 40 cents per day. But it wasn't so much about the money part, it's about their, their lifestyle, their culture, um, just just alive. And, and I wanted to understand that before I started this company to try to help them. I have so many questions, but let's start with how did you find a farmer to crash at? I mean, you just <laughs> say, hey, my name's Neil. I'd like to yeah. hang out at your place and learn about farming. <laughs> so let's start there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. So I pretended that I was still a student and I was going there to do research on organic farming. So I said that I was sent by my university, which wasn't totally truthful, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. But, you know, like, I couldn't just turn up. Um, so I did some research and I found a group of organic farmers um, in, in, in that region. And yeah, like I, I guess the first time I met them, I said, look, I'm a student. I'm doing a research uh, and I want to help you. Um, so I need to learn about your life, your, you know, how you grow the, the how do you make your income, uh, just everything. And I want to, know, I want to work in the field. You know, I want to help. As it turned out, I was pretty useless in the field. Um, <laughs> that's that's a different story. <laughs> 
I, I work out a lot in the gym, so I thought I was physically strong, but apparently not. No problem. Um, it, it, it is physically uh, very, very tough there. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's how I started to do research. Um, and eventually, you know, we became family. I started to get to know the local community. Um, then I said, look, you know what? I, I have this dream that I want to start a company to, to really help change your life and your children and your grandchildren. Um, yeah, so so I was there for a whole year and, and it was one of the most wonderful years of my life um, to to just, uh, I guess, go into a new world that, uh, yeah. I can only imagine. I just have to share with you that my grandfather had a rice plantation in the Philippines. So oh, I do remember wonderful. as a little girl, I think I was around nine, and, uh, you know, it was a big trip. You know, we went back to the Philippines, we visited, and then we took, you know, a really long, long ride um, to the province where it is. And uh, I just remember the way of life was so different. Everything from, you know, taking a shower to the springs, like by the volcano, like it was just so mesmerizing to me and very magical in a way, but it was such a simple life. And I remember the food being delicious and yeah. simple and fresh. Um, so I can only imagine what that experience was like for you, you know, to really immerse yourself for a full year. I was only there for maybe a week. <laughs> um, so I can only imagine yeah. how much you learned. Yeah, look, I think I think it's I think the biggest lesson for me was was um, that that you don't have to have anything to be to have an amazing heart. Like these people have the most amazing hearts. I mean, they're so loving, they're welcoming, they're warm. They make no money, but they have everything to be happy in life. And, you know, I think that was the biggest lesson for me. It's like, it's just how amazed, like how happy these people are, how present they are, and how they're just always giving. And and I thought that, you know, after that experience, like having had the education that I've had, um, the privileges I've had in my life, that I definitely felt that it was um, a responsibility for me to do something more than just, you know, get a get a good job, and 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 hopefully do a little bit for them. Yeah. So, I would love to know what you learned in that year and how things were originally structured in terms of how they made their money, and then how Jazzberry Rice came about and how that made a difference. Yeah, like I mean, there, there, there's a lot there um, in terms of the farmers, and this is the similar in the Philippines too, and in uh, you know a lot of Southeast uh, country nation, mm-hmm. is it, that um, they basically grow the rice and they have been growing it the same way for for generations, and they are price takers. So whatever the market price is for that year, um, they don't find out until they deliver it at the rice mill, uh, which. You know, typically they don't have many choices because there's only one rice meal in each region. Um, so whatever price the rice meal gave them, they take that, uh, which is kind of ridiculous because uh, there's like the, the middlemen that come and they collect the rice because a lot of the farmers, they don't have their own truck. They don't have their own logistics. So, um, you know, they, they can't afford to drive, you know, 30 miles uh, to, to deliver rice. Um, so, you know, they have a middleman that come and they pay like, a very very low price you know barely covering the cost um and they take the rice away and, and and they do that once or twice a year depending on if they have irrigation in the area that i was at they don't have irrigation so they can only grow rice once a year 
So from an economic standpoint, it was horrible. Mm. I mean, I studied economics and I was like, okay, this is <laughs> this is not, you know, aware that that the, the system was um, structured in a way to keep them poor, basically, right. right? To keep them like this for another hundred years. So it was very clear to me that that the system was um, designed in in a way, and a lot of it have to do with politics. Because you know, 17 million people or 25 percent of the country is a big population for for voting. So the government always have the policy, different policy uh, that sounds good. Like they will say things like, "We will offer to buy the rice at this price for all the farmers in the country." But actually, in execution, what they do is they buy the rice from the rice mill, not from the individual farmer. Uh-huh. So, so the rice mill uh, typically owned by you know, wealthy people and politicians. So they ended up benefiting from the scheme and the individual farmers still basically get the same price and they have no other form of help in terms of capacity building and training and knowledge or technology. So so that was the the, the existing situation. It was very much more of a cultural thing because for, for Thai people, um, when they grow the rice, they, they eat it first, right? It's for subsistence. So they, they consume it, whatever leftover, uh, they sell. So it was designed more for, for uh, survival. It, it wasn't, I guess, designed to make money uh, in the yeah. first place. Um, and this is a, a cultural a cultural thing. So when I first came in, um, understand that I, I identify that like the key thing for this project to help them get out of poverty was knowledge and innovation. So we have to change the way we do things. And, uh, you know, from uh, the standpoint of the yield, they need a high yield, they need to minimize the cost, um, and then we need to provide them with the market and, you know, financial education. So all of this were, were like some of the things that I thought about. So what, what when we first started, I asked a really simple question. I said, if I am going to help rice farmer, I need the best rice innovation in the world, which sounds kind of like you can probably Google that <laughs> best <laughs> rice innovation in the world, right? So I I I, I seek uh, the best rice scientists in the world. So I, I I literally type in Google, you know, best rice scientists in the world. Oh my and, goodness! And, yeah, this is ridiculous, right? This is two thousand and eleven, so this was ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, this scientist is a Thai gentleman and not Brazilian. So I didn't have to go halfway across the world to meet him. I cold call the scientist. I, I, I gave a pitch in 30 seconds. I think he was in a meeting. So he's this award, international award-winning rice scientist. He was in a meeting. Like I called his, his mobile. You know, I found his number. Wow. I called him up and I said, like, I need your help. And we're gonna help millions of people. I, I I I forgot what exactly I said. He came out of the meeting. He must have thought like this person was crazy. And we ended up talking on the phone for one hour. The next day, I drove three hours to his house, and we spent six hours together. And that's how Jasper was started. So it 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 was really um well his brand right. He's been working on rice genomic for thirty years. So his specialty is developing new variety of rice through natural crossbreeding. So non-GMO method, right. which takes which takes up to like 15 years to even develop one breed, right? It's a very time-consuming process. Um, and he told me that, hey, I developed this rice, which is the healthiest rice in the world by far. 
And the first question I was like, okay, does it taste good? Because you know, if it tastes bad, <laughs> no one's gonna eat it. Good question. So we, we cook, we cook the rice. You know, being a Thai person, I'm all about food, right? So we cook the rice. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. It's delicious. It's soft. It's aromatic. It's dark purple in color. So it's got everything, and it's it's got seven times higher antioxidant than kale, and four times higher antioxidant than quinoa. It's a superfood. And I'm That's like, just jaw dropping, right? Yeah. <laughs> Brain so, exploding. <laughs> so yeah, in my brain, I was like going crazy. And this scientist looking at me, he's like, "So what do you think?" And I said, "Man, like we could change the world, you know, with this." And he's like, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, we could help not just the farmers, but we could help consumers eat something on a daily basis, which is nutritious, delicious, and affordable." You know, you can eat superfood every day and have like the best nutrition and and source of energy, and also low glycemic index, which also help with, you know, blood sugar level and diabetes. I was like, man, rice is one of the big biggest cause of diabetes in the world. You know, so so all of this was going through my mind, and I asked him. I said, you know, what's your dream? Why are you doing this? And he said that you know I've been doing research my whole life because I want to help farmers because my parents were farmers. And I've seen how hard you know their life was, and and I said, <laughs> so I told him, uh, you know, this was yeah, 2011. I said, I'm going to start a social enterprise um, that is going to help one day take millions of farmers out of poverty and change the health of consumers worldwide. And he looked at me and he thought, "You're crazy." I said, Look, "Well, you know, let let me try and let's see how far I can go." So that's how Jasper was started, and the Jasper Rice is the name of this rice that um, I discovered that day 10 years ago. I feel like the stars aligned for you. Who would have thought that a simple Google <laughs> query would result in this amazing partnership? I mean, he here he is, he's developing rice. What was he planning on doing with it if you had not walked into his life? We just stay in the lab forever in, oh in the university. So now you have Jazzberry rice. It's a superfood. It's delicious. It's it checks off all the boxes. How is it in the field? Is it any different? Like, is it is it hardier? Do you does it grow faster? Yeah, it, it's uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm I'm about to send it to you. Oh, I can't. So wait. you you'll get it in a few days. Thank but uh, basically, it's dark purple in color. It almost looks like it's black, but it's actually um, has this the same pigment that you have in blueberry. Uh, and this purple food, which is, you know, the the antioxidants. Um, but yeah, it is not. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the easiest rice to grow. So we had to provide some training for the farmer who are used to growing uh, your basic white rice or jasmine rice. So there's certain um, uh, fertilizer uh, that are needed uh, because it's a color rice. So the darker the rice is, the more nutrition it has, the more antioxidant it has, and vitamins. So yeah, it was um, definitely learning about uh, the even the the life of the uh, the crop is a little uh, shorter than your typical jasmine rice. So like a typical jasmine rice would would grow in about 130 days, and jasmine rice would be like about 110. So there are there are differences uh, from a technical aspect of growing the rice. Um, and definitely, I was not the expert. The scientist was the expert, but it was quite funny because I brought the scientist down to see the farmer. Mm -hmm. And this scientist has, he's a rice scientist. The funny thing is he's hardly ever seen a real farmer. 
because he's always in the lab in the university, right? Mm. So I took him out. I took him out to the field, have hundreds of farmers. You know, he's explaining how to grow it. And I'm listening and I'm thinking, man, like no one is understanding this because it's like very technical. Yeah, yeah. So I was so like, okay, better stop. We have another farmer who's, you know, he's uh, specialized in rice breeding. So we got him to translate you know, kind of this knowledge in, in a way that the farmers can easily understand it and can execute it and grow it. And it took it took like a couple of years actually before um, the farmer was really comfortable in growing it. So it did take uh, some time to transfer the knowledge for them to to get to know jazzy rice, to, uh, to know the characteristic of it, what it like, what it doesn't like, uh, you know, how much how much water. How much sunlight and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's uh, definitely um, was a, a, a new process for them, even though it's still rice, but it's very unique. Like if you go into the Jaffe rice field, it's like total purple. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Normally the rice field is green, right? Yes. So it's, it looked like grass. Uh, you know, a lot of people that never seen a rice field in their life, they think it's just a bunch of tall grass. Mm-hmm. But um, but the, for the Jaffe rice, it's a purple field. Which is which is a really beautiful, visually stunning experience, and for the farmer, they keep twenty five percent of all harvest for their own personal family consumption as well. So they also get to eat a, a very different rice, um, you know, as opposed to the regular rice they eat. So was there a lot of pushback at first, or were they willing to to try it? Willing, you know, was it was it a hard switch for you know, or did they start? Okay, well, well, why don't you try it and I'll see how it works out for you before I jump on board. Oh yeah, definitely um, would have been a lot of resistance, but because I had spent a year with them already, so they trusted me. So mm-hmm. we have developed that that relationship already, where they understand that I'm really trying to help, mm-hmm. and and I was um, very open in involving the farmers in all the decision making process. So it wasn't like I went there and said, okay, this is what you do. So I went there and I said, look, this is, this is, uh, I want to help you. Um, and this is the information. What do you think? So the, the way we work was very collaborative. And, um, and, and, and honestly, I was definitely by far the youngest people out of the, you know, the farmers, the scientists. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have as much experience and especially not in farming. So it was, my job was more a facilitator. Um, and I kind of helped design the system, how everything will function together. Um, and in terms of execution, a lot of it, you know, they did it themselves. I mean, they're farmers, like they're Just they're very good at what. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, we we give information, but but in the end of the day, like they have the expertise um, to do what they do. Like, a lot of people said, uh, you know, farming is a is a job. Like being a farmer is a real job. Like you need skill. Absolutely. You can't, yeah, you can't. A lot of people in Thailand they think like. You know, people from Bangkok, they're like, oh, I want to have my own farm. And, and they can't even grow like a, a, a lemon tree or something like that. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not that easy. Like, you need skill. Oh, my gosh. I mean, anyone who's tried to grow a single plant, some people have green thumbs. I'm not the greenest of thumbs. And it's hard work. And on a large scale, I have the utmost respect for farmers. They have so many challenges. And um, it's it's very hard. So how did things work in terms of milling? I mean, is is, mm-hmm. is it the same type of situation where they have to go and, and mill it somewhere else? Um, or did that become part of the business model as well? 
Yeah, so that that did become part of a business model in the sense that uh, we started a cooperative-owned rice mill. So the farmers owned the rice mill together uh, as as a cooperative, and we got some funding from the government. Um, yeah, so it was a local rice mill, and any profit made from the rice mill is a dividend payback to the individual farmer. So I, you know, didn't own anything. Um, just I, I wanted to make sure that we build a business model where really the farmers can really change their life and their future. Um, and, and it was not easy because let's say that they don't have the management expertise to run this kind of mill. Mm-hmm. So it took uh, almost uh, three years um, to really build build this from the ground up. And yeah, and it's it, it was uh, something that, that was um, uh, we wanted to, to do. And now they have their own rice mill and they have more, let's say, uh, freedom, and they're able to hire, uh, especially like in the facility, they hire almost like 40 women in the local community to do packing. So it is creating jobs in the local community as well. In one of the videos that you had sent me earlier, you shared a story of one of your favorite farmers. Um, could you just tell her story again? Because I thought that was, or tell, share it with everybody else, because I thought that was such a, a powerful example. Yeah, well, Miss Ma, I met her I think six years ago. Um, yeah, she is a very friendly farmer, <laughs> and uh, when she started the project, she had six acre of land. She had ten thousand dollars of debt, Oof. and if you earning if you earning forty cents per day, it probably take a uh, thousand lifetime for you pay back ten thousand um, dollars. And and you know she uh, used chemicals in her farm, mm. so within three years. Uh, she has paid off ten thousand dollars of debt. Um, her her land is certified organic, um, and it takes about three years to get certified organic USDA standard. And she increased her land from six acres to thirteen acres, so she's more than double her land holding. And the most important part of the story is she had three children who are working on a minimum wage in a factory near Bangkok, mm-hmm. and they are now back on the farm working with her. Because for the first time they have a, a future, and and you know like that's, I love this story because it it has all the elements of why I wake up and love what I do every day because you're bringing back family together. You know, it's a lot of the this is a cultural fabric as well. When when you're born poor like that in that in that um, environment and you have no future, when you're a young person, you, you you're forced to go into the bigger city to find job and you end up being like taxi driver, you know, labor worker and 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 you still like struggle a, mm-hmm. a lot in life. But you don't get to spend time with your own father and mother who who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s and they're doing this backbreaking work every day. Right, right. And it's heartbreaking. Like, you know, so it, it a lot of these farmers are are 65, 70. And I go in the field with them and it's backbreaking work. You know, it, it, it really just physically is so demanding. And I just, yeah, I just felt like, it, you know, if, if they had that children with them, and of course they want that children to have a better future in them. They don't want that children to be farmer and be poor like them. And this was one of the uh, first, you know, talk I, I, I had is I asked one of the farmer, he was a leader of the cooperative. He must have been 73. And I asked him, I said, do you want your children to be farmer? And he paused, you know, for a long time. And then he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't want them to be poor like me. 
and it really broke my heart because you know mm -hmm. as a as a child growing up i was always taught that the two most uh important occupation is teachers and farmers because teachers build our future and the farmers mm -hmm. provide us with food and and how did it get to a point where they are at the bottom of the social standing that there are these you know poor uneducated people who society just don't care about and a lot of it of this project with Jasri was to bring dignity back, is to keep dignity back to these people. Is that they feel like they're a valuable human being in the world. And I think this is more than just about making money. Um, it's about giving importance to what they do in life. Um, and, and, you know, I think that with 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 story like hers, it's definitely brought back her, her, her like she's proud to be a farmer now and, and she's happy and smiling. And I think that is a big part of why we, we started this project. Yeah, and it brings hope too for the younger generation. I know, you know, here in the U.S. as well, you you talk to farmers here, and it's a similar story. You know, you've got generations of farmers, but then when it comes to the newer generations, they're off doing different things and not necessarily coming back to the farm. This gives them a reason to come back to the farm, and continue that work with dignity um, and and hopefully prosperity. So I think that's wonderful. Okay, I have to ask yeah. you, what does, you've described that it's delicious, but how is jasmine rice different from, let's say, jasmine rice, other than the color? And is there like a nuttiness to it? Um, is mm. it less sweet? I'm just trying to think, imagine what it tastes like. Yeah, I think you will find out soon in a few days, but uh, definitely it is very nutty. It has an earthly nutty texture. It's very aromatic. Obviously, the color is dark purple. So from a nutritional standpoint, it's a different world. Like it's, it's not even comparable to jasmine, but from a taste standpoint, it's very interesting because it's different. I will say this, that I have given jasmine rice to, to hundreds of amazing chefs all over the world. And every single one of them have loved it because it's more versatile. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you use jasmine rice for like, if you fry it, uh, it, it loses, like, if you refrigerate it, it becomes very hard. Mm -hmm. With jaffy rice, you can stir fry, you can put it in the fridge, you can make cold salad with it. Yeah. You can, was, you know. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, you, it's a per, like, it's one of the only rice that I know in the world that you refrigerate it, it still retain a soft texture. You don't need to microwave it. So you can make uh, a creative cold salad with sesame oil, with, uh, you know, goji berry, with nuts, and then you just take it out of the fridge and you just eat it cold um, and it's still soft and delicious. So it's it has certain uh, unique characteristic when it comes to cooking and, and uh, food preparation. And what's your favorite way to enjoy jasmine rice? Oh, I, I eat it every day, you know, so I eat it like I would. So I just replace. Um, it's my main source of energy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, the best, let's say, uh, well, depending if you talk to the nutritionist, right, that carbohydrate is still the best source of energy. And this is, I would say, the best form of carbohydrate is complex of vitamin. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it, it, it retains um, your, like, you have a much uh, uh, longer energy during the day. So you don't get tired, you don't get sleepy. So it really provides you with a lot of uh, prolonged energy for the day. And so I eat it, you know, every morning um, and, and, and evening. So I eat it twice a day with, you know, for Thai people, we eat rice with, with soup, with stir-fried vegetables. It's not like in the U.S. where, you know, it's one uh, big plate. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Here, here, you know, you can make like poke bowl. You can 
I guess you can eat it with uh, cold salad. You can eat it with different things. But yeah, how I eat it is just uh, how Asian people normally eat rice, which is with other side dishes. With every meal. <laughs> with, with every meal, right? So it's it's uh, yeah, it, and we share food, right? Yeah. So so we don't eat it individually. We normally eat it with family or with friends. And then you know, with COVID, it's a bit more difficult because mm-hmm. people are freaking out with, with you know, sharing. Yes. But uh, yeah, no, normally it's uh, yeah, you, you, we share the food. So, well, I can't wait to try it, and I I'm actually also excited just because um, my son is an athlete, and I know that before oh, wow. he has races, you know, they he always requests things with rice because you know it's it's really good for for race day. So I think jazzberry rice will be a perfect thing for him to try. Where um, yeah. can people find uh, jazzberry rice near them? I know it's not yeah. as, I know you've expanded first in Europe, but now it's coming to the US. Yeah, we just started in the US not long ago. Is is available on Amazon and uh, HEB, uh, which is mostly in the Texas area, I believe. Um, and on Amazon, uh, it ran out quite quickly. Wow. So we are we we restocking right now. So if you go on Amazon right now, uh, it probably has some crazy price because it's not from us. Uh, it's from like a third party seller because it's out of stock. But I think the shipment just reached uh, Los Angeles this week. So hopefully, uh, uh, you know, over uh, by next month we will restock it and it will go back to normal. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Well, I can't wait to try. Thank you for spending time with me today. Before I let you go, I have a few closing questions, if you don't mind. Just fun ones. So what's something that you like to make when you're too tired to cook and you just need an emergency go-to meal? Hmm. Um, If I'm too tired, um, go-to meal. Like, you you don't count, like, pouring milk and and cereal, right? Oh, that, that totally counts. counts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, then that's a, I just mute in cereal because, uh, you know, I mean, healthy cereal. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not as sophisticated, you know. <laughs> no, I think that's legitimate. I've, I've had different responses. I've had potato chips. Um, okay. you know, and then there's people, of course, who, who take things like frittatas or, you know, but no, I've gotten the whole Yeah, like gamut. when when i'm traveling like this because i just uh, arrived from bangkok to los angeles two days ago mm-hmm. the first thing i did was i went to a supermarket and i got some healthy cereal i got some fat tread milk and you know like i got some chobani yogurt and i okay i have meetings all day and i can you know it's easy survival food <laughs> survival food yeah <laughs> what's the one recipe that you treasure the most yeah, actually, that is the 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 um, the cold salad that I mentioned earlier. Oh. You've seen the jasmine rice. I call it, we call it the superfood um, salad, uh, which is really just the best is the jasmine rice. So you cook it, and then you mix it with uh, sesame oil, a little you know chili paste if you want it to be spicy, and then you just add whatever you want, like nuts, you know, dates, raisin, um, capsicum. And you put a bit of, you know, um, lamb on it. That's it. You keep it in the fridge for three or four days. You can eat it cold. And yeah, it's super easy to make. And it provides you with all the nutrition and energy you need. And it's kind of convenient. So so that's kind of my favorite thing. Because I'm, I'm not a good cook, you know. So if I can cook something and it tastes amazing, then 
um, I would happily stick with it. <laughs> so well, it's not so com not complicated. No, no, it sounds really good, and it's actually like my perfect type of lunch. Those are the kinds of things I like to eat. So that sounds great. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? No, I'm very neat. So I'm oh, perfectionist. So even though I'm not good, everything is clean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it's not the right focus, but um, yeah. No, that works because I'm the opposite. I think I'm a good cook, um, but I'm very messy. What's oh, a most good... good cook are very messy, though. I hope so. so. <laughs> most good cook are very messy. <laughs> What's a good kitchen tip? Ah, my good kitchen tip. Um, I think I think it's a lot about the, the preparation. So uh, I, I I always find like the preparation take like hours, and the mm -hmm. cooking part take like ten minutes. So I think the it's just kind of organizing your your space in a way that you're comfortable with, you know, making the the, the preparation as enjoyable as possible. So you want to enjoy the process, right? Yes, that's one of the thing. And and you know, like for example, in Thailand, if you have to like do it outdoor, right? You have so many mosquito and Mm. And it's just an unpleasant experience. So so you want to set up like a station where, you know, you don't have mosquito and you have a, a clean space, you play some music and you enjoy like the process of cooking. So I would say like that's kind of most important for me is to yeah. enjoy that process and, and, and share with your friend, you know, with your loved ones, with your family. I think that's the best because then you have really quality time as well. I agree. Um, every Friday I try to share five little things. And I share anything that makes me smile or made me smile that week. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Oh, uh, yeah. I I went um, uh, yesterday. I, I went to send some posts, you know, some packages. Right. So I look on my Google map and okay, it has a UPS store. So I went to the store and it wasn't a UPS store. It's like this really old rundown store um, that, you know, has this like we send everything. Oh. <laughs> um, but you has everything right. So I went to the store and this old Chinese lady, just a loveless lady, and she had a classical music in the background. So she's playing like, you know, Beethoven in, in the background. And I'm thinking, oh wow, that's that's beautiful. So I started talking to her, and as it turned out, she's a frequent opera fan. She travels oh, the world to listen to opera music and and so we ended up talking for like an hour. And, and I just love this kind of random connection in the world when you're traveling and, 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 you know, she's, yeah, like her, her husband died like 10 years ago, but she is, she has so much positive energy and gratitude in life. And I love people like this, where she said about, you know, these are the things that made me smile today. And she shared it with me and that made me smile. So it was like an amazing like encounter. Um, Oh, now I'm smiling. So it's paying it forward. I think that's such a great story. I love people like that when they're just so interesting and fun to talk to. Yeah, and like she was like sending, she was measuring my my package, but she was doing it in such a way that was looked so enjoyable. It was like she was cooking or something. And I'm like, man, I've never seen someone measure something and enjoy it as much as you. Because <laughs> most people will be like, okay, I'll just throw this in the, you know, this area, but. Yeah, but she really uh, loved her job. And, you know, she's the business owner and she's been running it since 1983, um, you know, here in Los Angeles. And yeah, it's just, yeah, like you said, it's like, it's beautiful when, when people live life with passion and purpose, you know, and she does that. And, you know, I definitely appreciate that.
Yeah, no matter what you do, whether it's changing the world with jazzberry rice or measuring a package. I'm actually going back today to give her a packet of jazzberry rice. Oh, good, good. She'll probably so enjoy that. Gonna go back and yeah, like because because she made my day yesterday, so it's good. Yeah, and then she'll tell her friends and. They'll tell their friends. So, Neil, I really enjoyed talking to you. I learned so much today. Thank you. Where can people find Jazzberry Rice? And where can they find you? Yeah, so right now we are on, we are on Amazon and on SUB, and hopefully uh, we will be available a lot more in other stores um, this year. Um, I'm here for, for six weeks to grow the market and to learn. Um, and we have a website called www.jazzberry.net. You can learn more as well, like we, we're hoping that we're gonna start some social project where uh, consumers can participate mm -hmm. um, in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, so uh, follow us on Instagram. We have uh, called Jasper Rice, and and thank you, thank you for having me here. You know, really appreciate your time. It was a joy. I love learning about things like this, and especially when it's good food and a good cause and all in one. So thank you again. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Neil for joining us today and sharing how he is doing his part to nourish the world. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.